You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Say good morning. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus at Bethel. And we're delighted to begin the Advent season formally. Someone asked me not too long ago, why do you guys say Advent now? What are you you trying to do? Why don't you just say Christmas? Okay, fine, we're starting the Christmas season. Advent is simply a great old church expression to discuss the coming of Christ, the incarnation. What C.S. Lewis says is the greatest of all miracles that every miracle in the Bible points us toward the coming of God becoming flesh. Every miracle after that points back to the fact that God is with us. Emmanuel, he is the with us God. And so when we celebrate Advent, it's not just a Christ mass. It is Advent. God has come among us. And because of that, everything has changed. And so we get to start this morning formally celebrating the Advent season together. I really do mean it. I think it is the most wonderful time of the year. Now, there is a lot going on that I want to draw your attention to. For starters, if you are a visitor with us this morning, we are so glad that you're here. We don't think it's an accident. We think that the Lord is drawing you here for a purpose. Either to say, this is the church that I'm going to become a part of. I'm going to put down roots. This is going to be my community. I'm going to live my lives with these people, and this is going to be home. Or you're here this morning so that the Lord can go, oh, yeah, no, that's not it. We, we aren't ever coming back to this place. We're okay with either one of those things. We are convinced that the local church is God's plan for your life, and that you, as a person, will never be fully settled until you are engaged at the soul, heart, body, mind level in a local church. We mean that. I believe that with everything I have. And so if it's this church, we want to help you to get engaged uh, as as the Lord would have you uh, participate. So you can do that a couple ways. Get that process started. There's a five by seven glossy card in the seat back pocket in front of you. You can fill that out and drop it in the file folder between the exit doors on your way out. Or you can text your information to this phone number. All you got to do is Text your phone number or email address to this number. I see you on your phones the entire time I'm preaching. It's okay. I assume you're texting this number, all kinds of fun things. But we want to know that you are here. We want to help you get connected. Now, once you're connected, there's a whole lot of other things that are happening. For starters, uh, tomorrow night, December 3rd, our own Brent Kirkley is leading a class, uh, a session, if you will, on the first floor. Now, Brent is one of our pastors at Bethel. He also leads our tapestry counseling ministry. Many of you know Brent. Brent is Captain Awesome. Uh, He's going to be leading this discussion about when the holidays aren't merry. We all know that the Advent season, the Christmas time, is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. And it is so long as you're doing your little Instagram thing. But as soon as you put Instagram away, life sort of sets back in and it's not quite so awesome. And we have all these amplified feelings of not awesomeness. So, I want to strongly encourage you. Brent has never disappointed in talking through these kinds of things. He's great at this. His wife, Jill, will be with him. So it'll be tomorrow night on the first floor in the listening room. Find more information here in the bulletin. Now then, after that, coming on next Saturday, December 8th, is our live nativity. This is a big, huge deal. Stephanie Mazingo and her team quarterback all of this, and they do a tremendous job. Last year... We had something like 860 people come through, uh, which was amazing. We anticipate because of good weather and a lot more staff, a lot more participation. We're going to have a whole lot more people. So I want to challenge you and ask you to come and be a part of it in some way, to come walk through, bring family, bring friends. It's going to be a spectacle. Don't ask me how we got it past the city, but there are now trapezes and monkeys. I'm not sure how, but you know, just like in Jesus's day in the nativity scene, there's Anyway, come and see for yourself. It's this coming Saturday. goes from 5 to 8. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. So please come and be a part of that. Uh, and it's another way for us to give gift back to the city. Um, some of you are here, and that in and of itself is a, uh, a miraculous deal. We had a, a challenge with our parking. It's one of the challenges of being in the center of the city is that we had a half marathon race this morning and so parking in the garage and around the downtown area was a little bit challenging but you got here and so we're thankful that you are here. Let me say one last thing about uh, some things that are going on in the life of our church. Next 
Sunday, yeah, next Sunday, December 9th, we are going to have a couple of our missionaries here with us. Now, I know what you just did. If you grew up like I did in a Bible church, you hear missionaries and you go, oh, gosh, oh, it's going to be a slideshow and they're going to show us some pottery and oh, God, come, Lord Jesus, come. Hold on. That's not how we do missions here. We love missions. We love for the gospel to sound forth. And specifically at Bethel, we have made a decision that we are going to try to refine our focus on missions. We have supported a lot of missionaries from Bethel's very beginning. It's become a part of our DNA that a certain percentage of all of our giving goes directly to missions. But what that is sort of bred is that there are a bunch of missionaries that most of our people really don't know relationally. And so what we say is, oh yeah, we've got a relationship with them, or, or we support them over there, we support them over there. And I say, really? Well, what are their kids' names? And you go, oh, I don't even know where that country is. Right. So here's what we've done. We have sort of scrambled all of our missionary assignments, and our campus in particular now has a smaller subset of missionaries that we are responsible for pastorally. Meaning we want to know them. We want to move away from language that says, hey, we support them over there. Through No, that's us. That's actually us over there. And they're dying on the vine. They're crumped in a pile because it's hard and they're not seeing any fruit and it's discouraging, but that's us over there. So we want to know them and love them and pray for them accordingly. And so to begin that, next Sunday, Ben and Lindsay Atkins are gonna be with us. Uh, they're in town for a couple months uh, she is expecting and is due in either later this month or January, we shall see. And they are ministering in Western China. And it is a very, very difficult uh, location. I'll put it at that. So what we're going to do is we're going to have them on stage just for a little bit, have a little bit of a dialogue, discussion, conversation. And then after the second service, Matt and his wife, Megan, uh, Mike and his wife, Heather, me and my wife, Susan, we're going to take them to lunch. And you are invited. Let me be very clear. We're not paying for your lunch. All right, we're going to go to some restaurant, we're going to sit in some private room, and we're just going to hang out and really encourage and listen to Ben and Lindsay and their adopted son Paxton tell their story. So we want to invite you, but next Sunday, you're going to have to RSVP and tell us that you're coming so we know what size room to get at wherever restaurant we go to. All right, so I want you to think about that, pray about that, write that on your calendars, December 9th, potential lunch uh, after church. Now then, Here's what I would love to do as we kick into our Advent series. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to continue to worship together. It's not like the worship stops when the music does. No, our worship informs our theology. Our theology informs our worship. They go hand in hand. So we're going to continue to worship here in just a moment by the study of God's Word. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We thank you for the gospel, the awesome announcement, the great story that we really get to emphasize and focus on closely this holiday season. So Father, I pray that there would be no distraction that would prevent us from hearing you speak to every one of us in this room this morning, that you would sound forth by your spirit among your people. We pray all this, God, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret in the church. Most of you have probably always suspected or picked up on, but I'm going to go ahead and say it out loud. Every worship pastor secretly wishes he was the pastor. It's true. Just think about the normal guy. Yeah, it's true. And consequently, every pastor also secretly believes that he should be the worship pastor. Right? I mean, just give me a guitar and I could bring this place. No, 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 no. Actually, it would be a horrible thing. I think part of it is in our context, I see what we do and when Chris is leading or when Matt is leading and it's so good and it's so lyrically rich and it's so theologically accurate. I just go, man, I wish I could be a part of making something like that, of, of leading us to worship in that way. And so since Matt is gone today, I'm gonna pull rank and I'm gonna lead us through a song. Stay put, stay put. I will not be singing. I will not be playing. I will not even be clapping, okay? There will be a very difficult to discern rhythm at best. But what I want to do is I want to walk us through a song that's going to be familiar to all of us. It's a great old Christmas carol. It's a great old hymn. Now these hymns are super important in the life and the history of the church. For many, many centuries, most of the people associated with church were illiterate. 
and certainly biblically illiterate. And so the great hymns were written to give people a summarized, synthesized theology or doctrine that was portable, not inspired, they're not inerrant, but they are wonderfully rich at communicating and conveying some doctrinal things that we hold very dear. So seeing how it is the first Sunday of Advent, I want to walk us through the carol, We Three Kings, because Lord willing, it's going to be very pertinent to the passage that we're going to look at here in just a moment. So this is from We Three Kings. It goes like this. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, Gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. And I want you to hear the refrain. I want you to hear the repetition and the request. Now there's another verse, and then another verse after that that most of us don't know, because we usually sing about two verses of these great old carols, and then we get bored, and we go, just do, you know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing again. But we're going to keep going, because there's some really deep truth in here. Third verse, frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising all men raising, worship him, God, on high. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone cold tomb. Merry Christmas! Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. I wish we sang that verse more. So beautiful, capturing the career of the Christ. Fourth verse. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, sounds through the earth and skies. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. And that's my hope and my prayer, my expectation for this entire Advent series. We are starting this morning a new series that'll take us through December 23rd called The Gift. We're going to spend, Lord willing, four Sundays talking about the gift. We're pushing pause on our series through the Gospel of John. Lord willing, we will pick that back up on January 6th. But for now, we're going to talk about the gift. This morning, we'll talk about the gift to the wise men. Next Sunday, December 9th, we'll talk about the gift to the shepherds. The Sunday after that, we'll talk about the gift to Mary. And then finally, on Christmas, December 23rd, in both services that we'll have at this campus, we'll talk about the gift to us. That's what we're after for these four Sundays in Advent. The gift that we'll discuss this morning is going to come to us from a very familiar Christmas passage, but it simply could not be more practical, more pertinent, I think, for every single one of us in this room. And it's also going to lead us to our big idea or sort of our thematic thrust for the morning from this text, and it goes like this. Jesus gives the gift of joy. Jesus gives the gift of joy. Now, again, Brent Kirkley, our pastor who runs the, the uh, Tapestry Counseling Center, is here. So I say this in his presence. I will say this almost as dogmatically as I can, however, that if people sincerely had authentic joy, Brent would largely be out of a job. Amen. Joy is the thing that pastorally I think I see the least in people, even those people who call themselves Christians. So when I say this passage is immensely practical, I think it is for every single one of us. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 12 verses, and then we'll just try to unpack it very briefly and see if we can apply it. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, 
wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I might come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Let me just uh, walk back through these very briefly and see if we can sort of glean and discern some things here. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Beit Lachem, that is the house of bread. It's a granary. There's actually two Bethlehems in ancient Israel. There's Bethlehem in Judea and there's Bethlehem way up in Galilee. Not a very special place. It just means the granary, the, the bread storage place of that particular province. It's rugged hill country in the Judean mountains. It's about five miles south of Jerusalem. It is a long way from Galilee where Jesus was uh, actually where he grows up. It's interesting that Matthew does not really give us any details about the birth narrative because that's not his concern. That's not his point. Matthew is trying to tell us that Jesus is king. He is the rightful Davidic king, the one that was promised by God to David. Matthew's whole gospel is that Jesus is the king. Mark is trying to convince us that Jesus is the suffering servant foretold in Isaiah. Luke is trying to convince us that Jesus is the man, the Lord Sabaot. He is the God-man, the man of men, the, the one that was foretold in the book of Daniel. And then the gospel of John is trying to tell us that Jesus is God. So we don't get a whole lot about the birth of Jesus. That's all in Luke's account. Matthew simply goes right to the fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem and that he's born in the days of Herod the king. Herod the Great, as Herod calls himself. No one else was calling him the Great. That was his own little nickname for himself. By the way, when you meet someone who's given himself a nickname, uh, I don't know. Okay, Paul the Awesome, that's probably not going to call you that, okay? Herod calls himself the great because he wants to be known as something. And Herod is, well, Herod's a piece of work. For starters, he doesn't belong. He doesn't fit. He's a pretender. Herod has a father named Antipater. Herod's father is an Idumean. Herod's father is an Edomite. Herod's father is a descendant of Esau. Dun, dun, dun. That's very bad. Herod's mother is Arabian. Her name is Cyprus. She comes from the line of Ishmael. So let me just make sure you got this. Here's Herod, who comes from Edomites and Ishmaelites, both of whom nationally have always, always in their DNA hated Israel. And now the product of the Edomites and the Ishmaelites is now the king of Israel. And they hate him. And he knows it because he is cray-cray. Now, Herod only comes to power because his father, Antipater, supported a man named John Hyrcanus for the office of high priest. That sounds weird. Wait a minute. The high priest is like appointed by God. Well, not anymore. Since the Romans have taken over, the Romans are actually installing and implementing who the high priest is, which severely chaps the people of Israel. But the people of Israel have to ask Rome's permission for who the high priest will be. And so it became a I know this is hard to believe, but it sort of became a political thing that was big in the media and there was mudslinging and there was money. But listen, just use your imagination and see how this goes. Antipater and therefore his son Herod support this guy named John Harkanus. They win. Rome appoints him as the high priest. To the victor go the spoils. So Herod marries the daughter 
of John Hyrcanus, the high priest. And he continues to claw and scratch his way in. He is made prefect over this one small area. But then the other prefect ruler just mysteriously dies, like in a plane crash or something. It was weird. And so Herod gets that one. And mysteriously, other people keep just, you know, catching a cold and dying at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of a weird deal. And so Herod continues to claw and scratch and gather to himself power until finally he's made prefect of all Judea. That's what Rome calls him. And he says, did you say prefect of all Judea? I'm pretty sure I did hear you say King Herod the Great, King of the Jews. And he carves all these statues. And by that point, Rome's going, you know what? He's letting the money come through. Fine, fine enough. But Herod is a, he's an unstable character. You remember the guy I mentioned, John Hyrcanus, who was the high priest? Yeah, well, Herod killed him. And not only that, but Herod killed that guy's daughter that he was married to. In fact, Herod killed most of his wives. And he killed most of his sons. Because if he ever thought that anybody was plotting against him, he would just kill them. He killed for fun. So much so that Emperor Octavius, on the Senate floor in Rome, once said, I would rather be Herod's swine than his son. Because it would go better for you if you were his pig than if you were his own flesh and blood. Herod was threatened. He was paranoid. And he always thought people were out to get him. Herod was a megalomaniac. When he was close to death, he actually issued an edict that said, anybody in Israel that is wealthy must also be executed so that at least there will be mourning in all of Israel. And finally, Herod died. And I think the main guy was like, well, hey, actually, I'm kind of wealthy. And he tore it up and said, we're not going to do that one. It's cool. Herod was a megalomaniac. But Herod was also brilliant the most incredible builder of all time, perhaps. Anytime anyone ever goes to Israel, they always come back saying, I cannot believe all the stuff that Herod built. I mean, the temple took him 46 years to rebuild Solomon's temple, and it was bigger and better than Solomon's temple. He builds Masada, this incredible fortress on top of a plateau by the Dead Sea. He builds Fortress Machaira, which is where John the Baptist was imprisoned and ultimately beheaded. He builds the Herodium, his winter palace in Bethlehem. He builds this seaport called Caesarea Maritima, where on the coast of the Mediterranean, you can't really land your big ships. And so Herod says, I know, I'll invent sinkable concrete blocks and make my own harbor. And just to really ice the cake, I'm going to build an aqueduct that goes 100 miles inland, brings in fresh water so that it can fill my freshwater swimming pool, which I have built out over the Mediterranean Sea. So I can splash right in fresh water while all of you idiots are over there slaving away for things. This is Herod. Why am I making such a big deal about Herod? Because into this setting comes this defenseless little child. It doesn't look good for a baby born in Bethlehem because Herod is absolutely crazy. Now then, let me keep going here. Matthew 2, verse 2, saying, um, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? There are these wise men. They are not kings. I don't know where we get that tradition. They are not kings. They are wise men. They are magi. And they ask of Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? This is probably not the guy you want to ask that of. You know what I'm saying? Like, this guy doesn't have a good track record. His litmus test of whether or not you should die is if you have a pulse. And then he'll just kill you. But they come and they say, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Not the one who is born who will one day be king of the Jews. No, 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 no. Where is the one who already is the king of the Jews? The title that Herod so desperately wants. Where is he? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These men are called magi. They're stargazers. That is, they are either astronomers or astrologers. We don't really know the difference. They're probably both but they're certainly not kings, as it were. This is they are from the rising. That's how we know that they're probably from the east. They're asking this question, where is this baby that we may go and worship him? Now they've studied astrology or astronomy or both all of their lives, and this occurrence is profoundly unusual. We don't really know exactly it is, what it is that they saw, but it's significant enough that they leave their home and their country at considerable effort and energy and expense. It's hundreds of miles. And their intent is plain. If all of the heavens are somehow deferring to this one who has been born, then we want to join in with creation and worship this one as well. So, so who actually are these guys? Well, 
Again, despite the hymn, the carol, they're not kings. They are magi. They are Persian or Babylonian. We know that because the expression magi is either Persian or Babylonian. There's a lot going on here that we can pull from the Old Testament. We know that when the children of Israel are in exile in Babylon, while they are there, the Persian Empire comes and takes over the Babylonians. And so while Israel is essentially in Babylon, a bunch of prophets are writing to the children of Israel in exile. So you've got Ezekiel, you've got Jeremiah, you've got Isaiah, who a couple hundred years earlier had been writing, that goes to Babylon, and you've got Daniel, who himself is an exile in Babylon. All of these writings, we believe that these magi have access to a lot of these writings and that they are familiar with the prophecies of these Hebrew people. And they saw how they lived and they saw how their God preserved them. No other nation was preserved when Babylon came, but these Jewish people were preserved and they got to go back home to their country. So they had all of those writings, but there's even another one. Way back even farther, 1500 years previously, there was a guy named Balaam. You might remember Balaam. He's also from Mesopotamia. That is modern day Iraq or Babylon. And he's a prophet in the Old Testament during the time of Moses. He's not an Israelite. He's a pagan, but he speaks on behalf of God. And every time he tries to curse Israel, a blessing comes out. You ever done that? You're trying to curse somebody out and it's just praise be to Jesus for you. May he give you abundance and prosperity. That doesn't usually happen to me. I'm really pretty good with the whole cursing language. But every time Balaam tries to speak, curse, blessing comes forth. You might remember Balaam. He's famous. He has talking livestock. This is a family show. There's a different word I prefer to use, but Balaam had a talking donkey. (laughs) Balaam's kind of famous this way. There's a wonderful passage where Balaam is paid to curse Israel. And he opens his mouth and he writes it down. And this is what he says. I see him, Numbers 24, 17, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth, or the sons of Tumult. So Balaam prophesies 1,500 years earlier, this Babylonian guy, essentially a Chaldean guy, he prophesies that there will be a star come out of Israel. He didn't even know what Israel was, really because they hadn't settled yet fully, and he will be the one that they are to be seeking. So we don't know for certain that these magi had Balaam's prophecy. It's pretty sure that they do, but in an, either way, we know that they are so convinced that something massive is happening that they leave their hometown. Now, we always see these guys displayed with a lot of pageantry. They're usually fully blinged up in like medieval bedazzle wear, right? They got these awesome magician hats, and we know their names, Melchior, Caspar, and Balthasar, and that there's three of them, and that they're different races, and I have no idea where that came from. That, I'm sure, came from the Coca-Cola company in the 1930s or something, because it's certainly not biblical, and we don't want to build our theology around that. That's not their names, tells us nothing more of that. Now, most of our nativity sets include, you know, the holy family, the manger, the livestock, the angel, the shepherds, and the wise men. I'm not telling you to throw your nativity set in the fireplace. Please don't do that. It'll mess up your chimney. It's bad. Don't do that. But that scene's not exactly accurate. We know from chapter 2, verses 7 and 16, that by this point, the baby Jesus is probably closer to two years old. So keep your nativity set. That's fine. Just put the wise men like on a different piece of furniture. Like over here, like it's going to take them a couple of years to get there, right? They're there, they're coming, but they're, and buy more sets of wise men, because there's probably not three, all right? They're traveling as an entourage. There are three gifts, which is why we think there's three dudes, but there's probably maybe 50 of them, 100 of them, we don't know. So just buy a whole bunch of them, put them on the coffee table. People come over, you'll be like, yeah, man, they got two years, they'll get there one day. That's the scene, okay? And they are Gentiles from Babylon. All right, so let's move on now. Verses 3 and following. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. You don't want a troubled King Herod. That usually makes messes of people. King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Like, rut row, Herod's cranky, someone's head's going to go flying over the wall. That's how it usually worked out. 
and assembling all the chief priests, all the theologians, all the doctrinal teachers, and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Oh, dude, he's the king of Israel. Now, I get it. He's a half Edomite, half uh, Ishmaelite, but he's still the king of Israel. And the Bible is explicitly clear. When you become king, you have to write the words of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, in your own hand so that you will know what you are supposed to know. You have to do it in your hand. Apparently, nobody ever actually did that. Maybe David. Maybe Solomon. Nobody else. He has no idea where the Christ is supposed to be born. That's tragic. Verse 5, it doesn't take them long. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, not Bethlehem of Galilee, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now, this is sort of interesting. If you were here last Sunday, we were closing up John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, we realized that there is a myth or a legend floating around Israel at this time that nobody knows at all where the Messiah will come from. Nobody has any clue where Christ will come from. He just sort of pops out, and there he is. And yet these guys go to the Bible. They say, no, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And these guys are saying that there's been somebody pretty significant born in Bethlehem. But it demonstrates their biblical illiteracy. Always dangerous for a society to have biblically illiterate leaders. Okay? They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. We heard Stephanie read this at Advent earlier. Who will shepherd my people Israel? And they refer and they quote Micah 5.2, and then they sort of cobble in at the end there, 2 Samuel 5.2. Ah, there will be a shepherd king born in the land of shepherds in Bethlehem. We know exactly where he's going to come from. And these pagans from Babylon have come at great effort and expense and energy and they say that they have found a phenomenological star showing them where to go and it's Bethlehem and it's only five miles away. It's like, this is it. This is amazing. Watch what happens. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly because he didn't want the rest of the people to sort of understand that he was concerned about all this. He's still trying to control his world. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Now, we don't know if the star appeared at conception. We don't know if the star appeared at birth. We don't know, but it's been probably a couple years. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. This is astonishing to me. They've just opened up their Torah, their Bible, and they've seen that the prophecy from 500 years earlier in Micah, confirmed by all the other ones, is that the Messiah, the Christ, will have a star heralding his birth in Bethlehem. And these people are coming from Babylon saying, we're the experts in the world on stars, and there's a star that's like doing all crazy things in the sky, and it's telling us that it's here, and we're associating it not just with something interesting, but with the king of the Jews. So they have some ancient text from somewhere that it is associating. Otherwise, how do they know? They understand that there is some connection between what they're observing and that it's Israel and that he's the king of the Jews. And the scribes and the Pharisees and Herod all go, why don't you go check that out for us? It's five miles away. And if the promised Messiah was right there, would you not go? It's five miles away. And they say, mm, I think we're going to stay and just wait to hear back from you. Why would anyone do that? A, because in their heart of hearts, they don't believe they need him. Because at the end of the day, this is going to be up to me. I'm going to continue to claw and scratch out my own sphere of influence, my own kingdom, and it will last until it doesn't and you're dead and your kids waste your inheritance happens in every single time but they don't bother to go and look you guys go and check it out and let's watch and see what they get because they go and look verse 9 after listening to the king they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them that's a tip-off when a star like actually turns left in front of you like oh there you go yeah okay uh, not clearer the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, let me, let me just say about the star. I don't know exactly what it is. 
I've gotten your emails about the movies that I should see, telling me what the star actually was. Now we have technology, we have all this great new NASA data that triangulates the movement of where Venus and Saturn made a baby and all these kind of astrological. Okay, hold it. We don't know. We know that stars generally move in an east-west direction across our night sky. This one hangs a Louis and goes south. It comes from the east, and then in Jerusalem, it waits for them. Like, you guys go and talk to Herod. I'll be right here. Y'all good? You ready? Let's go. And then it goes south. Stars don't just go to the south and then stop over somebody's house. So my personal thought is that it is the glory of God again returned to Israel since its departure in Ezekiel. The Shekinah glory of God leading them. And yes, it is a celestial revelation, but this is not a mystery to be solved. So many calories burned trying to figure out what is the deal with the star. It is not a mystery to be solved. It is a miracle to be believed. Like, what's the deal? We read the Gospel of John and we see Jesus turns water into wine. And we're not going, oh no, did he have some Franzia packets in his cloak? And he just kind of, you know, we're not doing that. We go, okay, there was a power thing. He transformed water to wine. I get it. I understand that. Oh, okay, let's see. Jesus um, feeds thousands and thousands of people. No one's going, I think he had a little granola thing inside there and he's just cranking out some. Nobody says that. We go, it's a miracle. I believe it. Hey, there's a lame man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. I bet Jesus just gave him an IV with Red Bull and just kept on pumping. No, nobody's doing that. We're going, okay, Jesus did a thing. It's a miracle. I believe it. But when we come to a star, we go, well, clearly there has to be some astrological. No, it's a miracle to be believed. God is telling us something that all of creation is paying tribute to God becoming flesh. It is a miracle not to be explained. It is to be believed and to be followed. So I don't know what the star was. I look forward to your emails, but I don't know what it was. <laughs> Verse 10. This is sort of the central passage of the passage. Smiley face emoji. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is Matthew, a Jewish tax collector, unable to say anything more emphatically than this. It's trifold redundancy. Not only that, he repeats himself. Not only that, he says the same thing three times. He, he can't say it with more underline, italic, highlight, blinking cursor emojis than this. He says the same thing three times. It's like he says, when they saw the star, they were like super, really incredibly rejoicing, no, really extremely lots. Now that's an interesting reaction. When they saw the star, they didn't go, hey dude, I think this is it. Like it was the most thrilling thing in their lives ever up to that point and ever since. It's the most exciting thing they had ever experienced in their life. This is as, as emphatic. We can't even translate it right in English because it's just, it's just repetition, repetition, repetition. They had great joy. They exceedingly great joy. And going into the house, I hope they knocked because I mean, you're like, oh, hi, here's a hundred of us from Babylon awkward. And Mary's like, oh, I don't even have a coffee cake, but yeah, come on in, fine, whatever. <laughs> Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Joseph is not mentioned. That's not a thing. We know that Joseph is still in the picture. He'll take them to Egypt here in the next passage. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. These are Babylonian, pagan, Canaanite moon worshipers who walk into the house of the king of the Jews and they worship. They fall down, proskuneo, they, they just fall flat. Notice they don't do that with King Herod, do they? With all of his buildings, with all of his wealth, with all of his fame, with all of his power, they just go, hey, where's the king? Where's, where's the king again? Can you, oh, five miles south, thanks. But this two-year-old, look, I've been around a lot of two-year-olds. In fact, you can go down on the second floor, find some two-year-olds and just, mm-mm. Now, these learned Babylonian or Persian educated people walk in and they see him and they go, yeah, and they worship him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Much has been made of these gifts, perhaps, possibly, we don't know for sure. Gold, certainly the currency of and for a king. Frankincense, you heard it perhaps in the opening carol that I read. Frankincense was to uh, signify deity. 
You burn frankincense to try to get the attention of the gods because it was so uh, delicious smelling. So frankincense is associated with deity. And myrrh, mm, interesting, is an embalming spice. Very, very expensive. Why do they bring all these? Well, we don't know for sure. My best thought is, yes, these things are very pricey. It's what they had. But my sense is also, this is God orchestrating this because it is a callback to uh, Psalm 72 and Psalm 110 that talks about the nations streaming in and giving gifts to the rightful king. It sounds very similar to what happens with David's son. God tells David, you will have a son and the nations will bring him treasure. And sure enough, Solomon is king. He is the wisest man and the queen of Sheba, which is Ethiopia, which means anything south of Egypt goes all the way to Israel to learn from him and bring him treasure. That's a foretaste. That's a foreshadowing. We have these three guys, or however many there are, 30 guys, from Babylon coming as pagans bowing before the rightful king. All of that that happened in the Old Testament is pushing towards us. I also think it's a call back to Isaiah that talks about the nations streaming in, paying honor to Israel's king. I also think it's a pre-shadowing of what's going to happen in Revelation 22 when it says all of the nations will come before the rightful king of the universe. Well, God is not done with these Gentiles, however many of them there are. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream. So I don't know how many of these people there are, but they apparently camp out at Mary's house. Like, that's a kind of a cool afternoon. There you are playing with, you know, the God-man. Then all of a sudden, an entourage of Babylonians shows up, and you make pallets on the floor. And then you got Twister, you do that. I don't know what you do, but they obviously go to sleep because they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. They're changed. Forever changed, they have come into proximity because of God's revelation celestially to them they have found the object and they worship and they are never the same again these men show up with gifts but they leave the recipients of the greatest treasure jesus gives the gift of joy and i don't know what they encountered when they went back to their own country but my sense is these men died somehow at some point joyously joyfully in their world because Jesus gives the gift of joy. Well, as we are on our first leg of this Advent series, let me just give three very quick implications. Number one goes like this. The king of the Jews is the king of the Gentiles. Now, I know we know that. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand and appreciate a king, but this king of Israel the Bible is telling us over and over and over again is offered to us. The king of the Jews is the king of the Gentiles. It's what Isaiah prophesied 750 years earlier and Matthew is saying, this is that. It's been on the books for 750 years. This is that. I need to read you this little bit lengthy passage from Isaiah chapter 60 because this is what Matthew is describing. Isaiah chapter 60 Verses 1 to 6. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. See if this sounds like Matthew 2. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Incidentally, that's why we think Maybe these guys were thought of as kings because of Isaiah's prophecy. Still, probably not. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They all come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. It's describing these wise men, these magi from the east, thrilling, exulting. They have seen the Christ. Verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you. By the way, that doesn't sound totally cool to me, but I, I get the idea that it's actually just camels that are like, you know, around because it's a symbol of wealth, not actually, you know, death by camel avalanche. That would not be cool. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news 
the praises of the Lord. It's interesting. Isaiah mentions gold and frankincense, the currency of a king, and the declaration of deity, but he does not mention myrrh, the embalming spice, as the song We Three Kings describes. Why? Because Isaiah could not fully see that there would be two advents. He's describing second advent, not fully realizing there is first advent in advance. The point is, what Scripture foretold centuries ago came to pass. God's never in a hurry. It shall come to pass. This Jesus is the King of the world, and He comes not to destroy the world or pay people back for their sin. This is very good news. I don't know what kind of week you've had, but I kind of sense that every now and then, if Jesus were to come back like on Thursday, He was going to be so ticked off at me but no he does not come to pay back the rebellious stiff-necked people that we are he comes to give great joy because jesus gives the gift of joy and this king of the jews is the king of the gentiles and he gives great joy to the world second point this passage teaches us surrender your kingdom it's not very american i know Surrender your kingdom. Herod's problem is my problem. Herod's problem is your problem. I mean, we kind of have a tendency to go, look, I get this whole Jesus thing. He's great. He's wonderful. I don't want to go to hell. I'd rather go to heaven. But in the meantime, I got stuff to do. I got to claw out. I got to scratch out my own sphere of influence. Let me just tell you, you will never, ever succeed. Or worse, you will. And then you'll die. And then your kids will waste it. Yay! Merry Christmas. <laughs> Surrender your kingdom. It's amazing to me. Herod had the opportunity to say, wait a minute. The actual king of the universe for all eternity is here five miles away and it's just there? Nah, I'm good. Because Herod believed that he was king even though he knew that he was not. So my hope, my prayer is that this passage will pierce and penetrate every single one of us to recognize I'm actually not the king of the universe, not even my universe, and I shouldn't even be the captain of my own soul because I am dangerously unqualified. Surrender your kingdom. Since Jesus is the king and since he comes to give great joy, wouldn't it be great to just yield every aspect of your life and say, you be the king, I'll be the servant, go. Third point, see for yourself. See for yourself. This, this passage is actually very tragic. Herod and the scribes and the scholars all had the text that said where and essentially when Messiah would be born. And they had these affirming, confirming messengers from the east that said, we've got your texts. We've seen the star. It's here. It's now. Let's go. And they wouldn't go see. They wanted to take someone else's word for it. They wouldn't go see it for themselves. Despite all the evidence, they simply didn't want to. It's just like we discussed in the Gospel of John. It's because they operated on the lie that who they were and what they had was enough. But it wasn't, and it never will be. So I challenge you, this Advent season, to take a moment to stop, to pause, to really look for yourself. What if it's all really true? How would that impact your joy, this gift that God gives I want you to really look at the reaction of these magi. They see this Jesus and catching a glimpse of who he is, where he comes from, what he will do, and where he will go changes their lives forever and gives them great joy. Yes, it's been said before. It's a tired old preacher's saw, but I'll say it again. Wise men still seek Jesus. Westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Jesus gives the gift of joy. May every single one of us increase in joy this season, not decrease. Now, this morning, we're going to get to demonstrate this by having communion together. And we're going to do communion a little bit differently than we typically do. We're not going to have the elements passed. Part of the reason for that is because we had no less than 87 men in brightly covered vests standing around the parking garage, getting you into the parking facility this morning. Thank you for all that, by the way, guys. But also, we want to give you an opportunity at your time to go to the back of the room, one of these three different communion stations, and take communion together with your row, with your small group, with your family, with your friends, with a whole bunch of strangers that are going to feel as uncomfortable about it as you do. 
But we want you to take communion together. Because Jesus gives the gift of joy. And my hope and my prayer for each of us is that we can appreciate that Jesus gives this gift. All of us are worthy of separation from God for all eternity. And yet, he gives this joy. He gives this gift of saying, but I have had perfect fulfillment of God's demand and I'm offering it to you freely. So as we take the bread, we recognize we get God's perfect moral code of righteousness fulfilled in Christ and it becomes ours and it's how God now sees us. And as we take the juice, we see that Jesus has perfectly satisfied the wrath and judgment of God over sin and that he is no longer disappointed or furious with us. And we get to do it together because those that receive grace share in the grace of one another. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, well, first of all, I want to invite you to believe. We believe that this passage is God's word and that it is true. And then it talks about God with us. Not a fairy tale, not a myth, not a legend. So I invite you to believe to talk with someone you know and love and trust or, or one of our staff, one of our elders, one of our deacons who can lead you through a, a clearer faith movement for the rest of you. If you are a believer, but if there's any unconfessed sin that in a hardness of heart you are harboring, I'm gonna invite you to sit there and prayerfully throw that at the foot of the cross, asking God to apply it to the work of Jesus. The answer is yes. If there's anything between you and anybody else, brother and sister, in Christ or in flesh, deal with that before you take communion. Take some time. We're going to hear some music. Whenever you're ready, if you'll go up, take communion. One of these three stations, go together. And then after you're finished with communion, you may be dismissed and simply depart. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gift of joy. God, we confess that though there are thrills in life, there is no lasting joy apart from that which is offered to us by your son Jesus. And so thank you, God, for sending him. Thank you for the opportunity to commemorate the coming of Christ at Advent. And may you impress it upon our hearts by your spirit. May we be different. May we be changed. Father, I do pray that we will, each of us, see for ourselves to really consider the Christ and that we would be changed by it. Father, would you be honored by our observation of communion this morning? I pray, God, that there would be no hearts, no minds, no souls left unchecked. That we would consider what you have done in Christ and we would celebrate it together at these tables. So may it be, God. I pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please take communion when you're ready. And when you're ready, you may be dismissed. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.